You know, in the age that we live in, we never know what people are going to say. This is an interesting time that we live in, isn't it? It's, this is, a, this is a, a, a time where people dogmatically declare on one side of an issue or another. We've just been through a big election cycle where you heard that. But, but people shouting on one side, shouting without hearing, talking right past understanding. Issues are latched onto and championed to the extreme. For instance, I mentioned elections. Let's just take this last election. Did you know? That this last election, even though it was only a midterm election, it wasn't a presidential election, but this last election in 2018, we were told it was probably the most important election in our lifetimes. Wow. That's ratcheted up pretty high, isn't it? I mean, when's the last time you heard an election was, was the most important election in your lifetime? Oh, yeah, it was 2016. Yeah, that's right. Before that, well, it was 2012. 2008, okay, wait, all of those are in my lifetimes. I wonder if, I wonder if we're going to hear that again, say, in 2020? Probably. Well, if God wills, the rapture will come, and that one will not be in my lifetime. Obviously, the overstatements have started before him, but let's give President Trump proper credit. President Trump maybe could be given the credit for the dawning of the age of hyperbole. I mean, he says everything in extreme. Like, the, he's had an interview, and, and they, they, they asked him how he would rate his presidency. And he said, oh, I'd give it an A+. Plus. Can you go any higher than that? Well, wouldn't he lose, I mean, down to an A- minus or something? I can, see the, I can see the comment, the teacher's comment off to the side, does not play nice with others. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe there's a little room for some improvement, but, but, but he, he, he speaks in hyperbole. He can't help himself. The age of hyperbole. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Let, let me help you with that. Let's put it to music instead. This is the dawning of the age of hyperbole. Age of hyperbole. Hyperbole. I thought you were going to join in and sing it with me. You're stuck with that now, you know. That's going to echo around in your head all day long. But if it's, not, if it's not elections, then it's global climate change. You know the IPCC, the International Panel on, on Climate Change, I think is what it's called. It's a UN body that's funded by the UN because there's a climate crisis, by the way. But they put out a report that says that, that uh, we only have 12 years to act or we're going to lose the planet. I don't know where you put a planet and lose it, but that's what's going to happen. We could lose the planet 12 years. Oh, that could be in my lifetime. But actually, that's good news compared to some of the other because in 2017, we were told we only had three years left, and that would have taken us to 2020, which would have been a double cataclysmic because we would have had losing the planet and the most important election in our lifetimes in the same year. But maybe if losing the planet came first, we could save money on yard signs and TV ads. With all this hyperbole, it's hard to know anything for, for sure, for certain, isn't it? Can, is anything really real anymore? Not long ago, in, 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 in 2009, Prince Charles told the world that we only had 100 months left because of climate change. Well, that ended in 2017, and yet here we are. And the heating system still isn't fixed. 
It could be a little cold in here come winter if that doesn't get worked out. In 2006, Al Gore, Vice President Al Gore said, we only had 10 years left. In the following year, 2007, the U.N. said we only had five. In 1989, we had a 10-year window of opportunity or it would be too late. But I'm not too worried. You know, back in the 70s, if you're old enough to remember back in the 70s, in the mid-70s, we also had a crisis. It was kind of the other direction. We were warned of global cooling. And if we didn't take action, there was a coming ice age. If we didn't take immediate action to warm the planet, which we did, well done, now we have global warming. If we didn't take immediate action back in the mid-70s, by the year 2000, the U.S. population would fall to only 20 million people. The good news of that would have been at least Florida could have got their votes counted on time. (laughs) The fun thing about the climate debate is that really there's no debate at all. I mean, everybody knows that their position is the only position. And if we only shout louder, everyone else will finally see it. Or at least we'll beat them into submission. In an age like that, where, where dialogue is replaced with demonstrations, and, and reason is replaced by riots, how do you talk to people anymore? How do you have a real conversation? How do we best represent Christ in an age where people have forgotten how to listen and we riot without reason? From Paul's final days or weeks in Ephesus, we're, we're reminded of a story, this big chaotic riot in the big theater there in Ephesus. And, in, and out of that story, we're reminded, first of all, that Paul, first century Christians, they lived in the same kind of time. They lived and served and spoke up in the midst of a difficult age. In that episode, we can be reminded of, of some of the key things to remember in our age of hyperbole in a time of riots without reason. What I want to do this morning is I I want us to turn to Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, the second half of the chapter, we're going to to rehearse that that story, that that episode of Paul's final final, uh, days or weeks in Ephesus and how it culminates in this riot. What happens there? And I want us to understand what's, what's going on there because there's some things that emerge out of the story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read through, but not just read the passage. We're going to kind of read and explain through the passage. And then we'll circle back around and there's three things that I want to talk about that relate to. And those are in your insert notes. You might see those in advance and be watching for them even as we read. You'll probably be ahead of me in that way. But, but I want us to, there's things that were important then that are just as important now for us if we're going to have the chance to, to talk with other people about things that matter most, about Jesus as Savior in the midst of a riot without reason. So just before we read Acts chapter 19, I do want to give you a couple pictures of where this happened. In, in the great theater in Ephesus, if you were walking in from the harbor, you'd come down this road, a beautiful colonnaded main marble, marble-paved street, um, columned and shaded sidewalks on each side. It was beautiful. Beautiful, all the way up from the harbor. And as you're approaching, you find this massive theater carved into the hillside that could seat at least 25,000 people. One of the ways they know that the size of the city of Ephesus in the first century was a quarter million or so is because the theater was 
normally in Roman times ten, could seat 10% of the, of the population of the city. And so 25,000 people, imagine in that, in that theater. Let's take another look. From inside the theater, you can see that road. Now that road going out, you see fields beyond it, way up there in the upper right-hand corner. That's actually where the sea was back in the first century. So the, the water came all the way in, but the rivers with all the silt and the runoff, it kept filling it in. The Romans kept digging it out. Finally, they gave up. God won. The, um, uh, so the, 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 the highway going off there, and here's the theater. You can see they've done some various renovations and such, but... Uh, you can imagine somebody sitting down there and could be heard even without a sound system. Now imagine this whole, all of those benches filled with 25,000 or more people. And they're all screaming and shouting and yelling. And you're the one they're unhappy with. Welcome to Paul's world. Let's read Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we'll start at verse 21. If you're using the church Bible there in the, in, the, in the bench in front of you, you'll find us on page 928. Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. Now after these events, after what God had been doing over, over several years here, not only in Ephesus but in all of Asia, and people are responding, lives are being changed, people are, are confessing and divulging, they're not hiding their sin, they're, they're sharing it with others, they're praying for one another, they're separating themselves from the things of a pagan past that no longer apply, and even with a great cost and sacrifice, they're putting Jesus first. And after this, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. He's, he's going to be receiving a gift from all of the churches that in the last couple of years have been planted from Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, even Ephesus and around Asia. All of these churches are going to give, give uh, some support and some help, some assistance to Jewish Christians in the land of Israel. Those who have felt the persecution because of their faith, persecution from their own people, that they've tasted bits of it out here in the, uh, across the Roman Empire, and they can only imagine how much harder it is for Jewish Christians in the land of Israel, cut off from their families, cut off from their jobs, and, and uh, destitute in many ways. And the church is coming together and helping one another. Uh, from there, after Paul carries out and helps the churches to fulfill this gift for the church in Jerusalem, after we've been there, we must also see Rome. He's going to carry the gospel further west and even west from Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, so that they would lay the groundwork, get things ready, organized for this, for this gift, he himself stayed in Asia for a little while longer. Turned out to be a good thing that he did. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was what Christianity was referred to in the first century. comes out of Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They didn't give it a completely different name. Followers of Jesus were called Christians, followers of the Christ, believers in the Christ. But they didn't identify it as a different religion. This was the fulfillment of Israel's faith, remember. But it was referred to as the way because Jesus is the way. Now, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, he, he brought no little business to the craftsmen. I like Luke's understatement here. 
no little business. That means he brought a lot of business. So Demetrius was kind of the top of the economic pecking order here. And he was a contractor. And he made these, as he made silver shrines of Artemis. Now a shrine is, don't think in terms of a building. Think in terms of a model of a building. There's a little statue of, of Artemis, and it has some sort of covering, maybe not a model of the whole temple, but there's some sort of arch covering over it to just give it some importance and some shelter. And, and people would they'd buy this silver um, article of devotion, we'll call it that. And they, they, they would travel to Ephesus and, to, and, uh, and go to the temple, and they'd buy one of these so they could take, in a sense, a, a little bit of the temple home with them, and they would continue their worship there. And so there's big money in this. Not only is there big money in the fact that we're selling these silver shrines, and they're expensive, but you're taking a big block of silver, and you're, as an article of devotion, you're taking it off the market. So silver costs even more for anything silver. It's advantageous for Demetrius that silver shrines of Artemis are a big deal and are popular items because he makes those and sells those, and it also ramps up the price of anything else he makes from silver because silver costs more. See how it works? Demetrius is a clever guy. But Demetrius has a problem. He gathered these craftsmen together with the workmen in similar trades like goldsmiths and coppersmiths and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. This is where we make our money. This is where we get our bread and butter. Guys, I can't give you orders if, we, if I can't sell these things. And here's the problem. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, where are the people who visit Ephesus come from, those religious tourists, Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods at all. And there's a danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Oh my. This is terrible. This could be a crisis. Uh, we have got to save Artemis. Artemis is the great goddess, but if we don't do something to prop her up, she might be toppled. There's a big difference there between devotion to, to God and, 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 and Jesus Christ than, than somebody like Artemis who urgently needs our help. You see, God does not urgently need your help. God, in fact, does not need our worship. God is pleased with our worship as, as a father is pleased with his children. God is worthy of our worship. The whole world should worship the one true and living God because of who he is. And as we know him for who he is, as we as we. As, as, our, as our eyes are open and we see this is our God. Oh my, it grabs hold of our heart. And the love of Christ compels us, constrains us. We must worship. We, we want to spread the gospel so that others will be born again. Others will have faith in Christ. They will worship too because God is worthy of their worship. And they'll find their own fulfillment and completion in worshiping him. But God does not need us. He does not need our service. 
We need to serve, but God does not need our service. You know, we'll receive an offer. We're talking in our business meeting today about the church budget, but guess what? I don't know if the finance committee wants me to say this, but God does not need your money. He really doesn't. You hold that back this week or next, God is going to be okay. The issue is not with God. The issue is with us. We need to give. We need to, set. We need to, we need to peel away and sacrifice and deny ourselves for the sake of others because that is the likeness of God. That's Jesus. Jesus emptied himself. He, poured, he gave himself. He left heaven's glory. He took upon himself humanity. He laid aside the prerogatives of the Godhead and, and that sacrifice for the sake of others. He gave his life for the sake of others. That's why we give. To participate in the character the mind of God. And to, to, to then that others would, in our community, us, one another as a family, people far from here would know him who loved us and gave himself for us. That's why we give. Not because God's in trouble. God's going to have a tight year. He's going to end in the red if we don't help out. But Artemis is different. Artemis needs those that are not gods but are manufactured gods. They need shoring up. And that's what Demetrius reveals here, interestingly enough. Now, when, they, when, they, when, all, when these craftsmen heard this, they were enraged. They were crying out. Now the chanting starts, great is Artemis of Ephesus. So the city was filled with confusion. Not reason, not understanding, but confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, the mob acts, dragging with them Gaius and, and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel, fellow missionaries. And when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples, the believers, the Christians, they, they would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, that's an interesting term, the Asiarchs. Who are they? What a weird term. For many years, uh, people thought that this was an evidence that Luke really didn't have his historical facts right because there was, there was no such official in the Roman Empire as an Asiarch. And then they found some inscriptions in Asia, around Ephesus and other cities that referred to the Asiarchs as, as the rulers in the region. And they were traditional rulers in Asia, in Asia Minor, in the same way that the Europagites and the Europagus, that ruling council was a, a traditional ruling council in Greece long before the Romans showed up. And the Romans allowed them to keep that structure. It was working. It was helpful for law and order. And the Asiarchs were the same kind of thing. They were the local rulers of the region. And they was inter interfacing between them and Rome through a city official called, well, we read it as a, as a town clerk, but really, you know, you, you think of the city administrator or the city executive. So that's the structure here, and actually those Asiarchs, so these are very significant and important people in the, in the uh, governmental hierarchy in the region. But even some of those Asiarchs who were friends of Paul's, that's interesting. We'll come back to that. They, they sent word to him and were urging him, don't come in here. Don't venture into the theater. This is not the time or the place. Now, some cried out one thing and some another, not the Asiarchs. This is back to the crowd again. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why. They're confusion. They don't know why. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know why they've come together. It's just this is a good time for a riot. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make a defense. Now, this is possibly Alexander the coppersmith, who, who Paul later warns Timothy about when Timothy's in 
Ephesus. He said Alexander the coppersmith, similar trade to the silversmith. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm in Ephesus, Paul warns Timothy. Could be the same guy here. Maybe he's going to say something like, you know, I want you to know that, that we, we Jews in our synagogue and, you know, we're, we're craftsmen and, you know, we haven't, we wouldn't do anything against um, uh, your temple and against your goddess. You know, Artemis um, is not threatened by us. Maybe that was his message if he'd had a chance to, and it's a pity. It's a pity, really, that there's more truth than that. That Artemis, in fact, hadn't been threatened by these sons of Abraham whose faith had somehow got lost in tradition over time. But, our, but, but Alexander didn't even get the chance to say anything. Alexander motioned with his hands, wanted to make a defense. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of Ephesus. And when the town clerk, the city administrator, had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? So all this starts because an asteroid, a meteorite, hits the earth one day. That's, where the, that's what this is born out of. But he said, we all know, everybody knows that Ephesus has been given the privilege has the right. We are the ones who are given the title. Temple keeper was a prestigious title, awarded, granted, recognized to a particular city. Nobody else could say, hey, that Artemis thing, that's working pretty good over in Ephesus. We should build a temple to Artemis. No, no. Ephesus is the official recognized by the Roman Empire place where the temple of Artemis will be. Cities competed for the honor of being the temple keeper of a new city. Or, or rather, of a new temple. When they build a new temple to a new emperor, guess what? All the cities, we want to be the one that's the temple keeper. They would compete for it in the same way the cities compete now for uh, Amazon's new headquarters. Something like that. Artemis, Amazon. I don't want to suggest a comparison. So he quiets the crowd. We, everybody knows this. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For he, he's telling them, I, I can see this, the T-shirts being printed. Be calm and don't riot. Okay? Do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. That's interesting as well. well. We'll come back to that as well. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls to judge there. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek another, anything further, you want more rules. You, these Christians shouldn't be allowed to, to worship as they do here. Well, go to the legislature then. There's a regular assembly for that. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. A riot without reason. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed, sent home the assembly. All right, there we are, a riot without reason. And I mentioned that there's, there's a couple of things I wanted to point back to. You get the big picture. You get the commotion of the day. You get that is, there's, there's a riot going on where there's not even understanding. People are stirred up on an issue, not because they have thought it through well and have arrived at a reasoned conclusion that this is what we have to do. Let's go riot. No. 
They're stirred up by emotion, and as they're carried along by emotion that has been refocused onto Artemis, they don't even realize the bigger issue that's here, which is closer to that $20 bill. It's actually about money. It's actually about Demetrius and his declining sales figures. And he's manipulated other people, but there's another agenda but th- that they're not even fully aware of. They think it's all about Artemis, when it's actually much more about money. And that's the first caution, I think, for us. The first exhortation for us as believers in the midst of a riot without reason is this. Don't follow the money. I word it that way because you always say, follow the money, you'll find out what's really going on, right? Well, don't follow the money. Be careful about money. Beware of loving money. The temple of Artemis was really good at mixing money and religion as a profitable enterprise. They were the central bank of Asia. They owned the mortgages all for the land, for the land all around. They owned and sold the fishing rights the way that major cities own and sell taxicab rights. So you wanted to do business, you wanted to make money, it was going to somehow benefit economically the Temple of Artemis. I have a picture of that temple just to remind you again. That's what the temple looked like, and each of those pillars are over 60 feet tall. This was one of the largest temples in the Roman Empire, and you see some of the Asian kind of look to it. And uh, they would sell these artifacts. In fact, they still sell them today. The temple's long gone. I'll show you something about the temple at the very end. But, but they still sell the artifacts even today. There's a whole bunch of, oh, look, there's some, there's some statues, there's some Christian statues in the midst of the statues of Artemis. That's a little scary. But, uh, yeah, you, you can still today, you can spend your money. You can buy an artifact. You can, you can buy a little shrine of Artemis, and you can bring that back with you. I hope that you don't. But there's a warning here. In the midst of that economic tying together. Beware of trusting those like Demetrius who wrap themselves in a patriotic piety to fill their own pockets and advance their own interests. Something that should cause us pause even in our wonderful republic and in in our government that we have to do that senators become rich and it's not because of the salary. You know, when, you, when we follow Paul's admonition to pray for our leaders, pray for them to guard their hearts against this love of money. Paul, Paul told Timothy, in the same letter that he told him to pray for your rulers, he writes this at the end of that letter in chapter 6. He said, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Folks, we live in a very commercial, a very economically centered age so that even the politicians say it's all about the economy. People vote their pocketbooks, and that's a pity, really. When we, when we, it was said that the American Republic would fail when people realized that by voting for their representatives, they could vote for their own benefit. When that happens, and rather than choosing what's best, we're on the downhill side. Those who oppose the gospel might have other motives that you don't know about. Why not ask them? Maybe it's, maybe it's the whole issue. What, what they really don't like about the gospel is this notion that All of us are actually accountable to God. 
Not a God that we make and define for ourselves, a God which I could be happy to believe in, but a God who has revealed himself to us as he is. And we're the ones that need to align with that, and we can't, and so we desperately, urgently need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Maybe it's satisfaction with something else, like money, silver shrines. The truth of Jesus would show that to be empty, and they don't want to admit it. You know, something that Demetrius admits in his silver smithing is Artemis herself is not enough. So it ends up being about the money. What are some of the bigger industries in our, in our culture? What are some of the bigger industries in our world that would be economically impacted if more people, if more people followed the early Christians of Ephesus? Even if the church was so gotten hold of by the gospel that other things didn't matter nearly as much or other things were simply laid aside because they don't fit any longer. One of the biggest money-making industries today worldwide is pornography and the abuse of women and children especially. Entertainment, movies, music, Various aspects of our culture's rampant, wasteful consumerism, a throwaway society. Want this has become need this. We've forgotten how to wait. Christians have forgotten how to fast, to discipline ourselves, to deny ourselves. Just because we need to, as Paul says, buffet our bodies and make our bodies serve us rather than life becoming a matter of serving our bodies' cravings and desires. We end up raising generations of, of, of children that don't know how to delay gratification. They don't know how to wait to put off something they want for the sake of something better and even more important in the future. And that's probably the chief lesson that you can hand off to a child for them to succeed in life. And so we end up with generations of grown-up children. We don't know how to wait we don't know how to deny ourselves. And so if that's true, how then as Christians can we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? Beware of the love of money, God warns us. Don't follow the money. Number two, Paul was able to declare his faith without disparaging what others believed. Isn't it interesting here that the town clerk, the city official, had heard of Christianity, knew the message, was familiar enough with this gospel over the three years that it had been declared in Ephesus and around Asia Minor, that he's able to say, guys, we know what these, guys, these people are saying. We know Paul and his friends. What they are not sacrilegious. The word there is a temple robber. They are not temple robbers. Now, somebody would rob a temple, actually steal the artifacts. Can you imagine? There's a little gold statue of the God there. The God is there. I was really surprised when I saw a statue of, of, of the, of the so-called God Baal in Israel. And I thought, well, statue of Baal, the big, important God of the Canaanites, must be huge, right? It was a little tiny thing. You could stick it in your backpack. But you can imagine stealing God taking him off in your backpack and melting God down. Well, God's not going to be happy about being melted down, you know, unless you have no belief whatsoever that that God is any kind of God. 
But th- that, that sense of temple robbing because you did not fear that God at all also came to just robbing the God or goddess of honor and respect, adoration, not giving it. Disrespecting them instelf, in, instead was also considered robbing temples, sacrilegious. Or blasphemy, speaking against the goddess Artemis. Okay? But the town clerk says, the town administrator, the city administrator says, no, 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 these guys are not doing that. They are not spending their time talking Artemis down. They're lifting Jesus up. That's good advice. There's a lot of people putting their faith and confidence in a lot of other things. And you don't need to spend your time talking those other things down. You don't need to spend your time arguing against everything else. What we need to do is lift up Jesus instead. He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. They say something about counterfeiting. In, in, arguing, in, in guarding against counterfeiting, you don't necessarily have to study up on all the different ways that people counterfeit money and all the different things you have to look for to know that, oh, yeah, counterfeiters do that. Yeah, that's counterfeit. What you need to do is know the real stuff. You know the look of it. You know the feel of it. You spend enough time with the real, and the counterfeit easily emerges as a cheap substitution. Declare your faith without disparaging others. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus later, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Don't argue error in anger, but speak the truth in love. Truthing in love. He wrote to the church in Colossae, another one of those churches in Asia, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. We're going to sit down at the table a little bit. Some of you are going to, you got the turkey there and the stuffing and the taters, and you're going to take some salt, and you're going to sprinkle that on there because that salt's going to make it even more delicious, right? And the salt's also going to make you thirsty, so then we're going to have to come by with more water, and we'll bring more water to your table because you had some salt on your turkey, and it's all wonderful. Let your speech be like that. Let your speech be so seasoned with graciousness and words of God's grace that people thirst for more. It might be better to tell them, to leave them wanting you to talk a little more than leaving them wanting you to talk a little less. Uh, Yeah, I say, yeah, Bob, welcome to sermons on Sunday. I mentioned Alexander disassociated himself with Paul. We're not any threat to Artemis. We're not any threat to the temple of Artemis. Yeah, they probably weren't. But Paul's not a threat to the temple of Artemis because he's talking against Artemis. Paul's a threat to the temple of Artemis because he's talking about Jesus. That's whom we hold up. Declare without disparaging. You don't need to diminish that which doesn't have any, ra- any value. Rather, we hold up what does. We are not in a competitive marketplace. We just declare the truth, and we can do that in love. How might others, how might the city official of our day describe my beliefs and my actions? Would they describe, yeah, Pastor Bob down that brush prairie, would they describe what I believe by what I'm against? Or would they describe what we believe by what we're about and what we're for? 
Would Jesus and faith in him and the wondrous forgiveness that is in the name of Christ, would that even come up in somebody else's understanding of my faith? When conversations come up, what comes out? That's how they'll understand, and that's why don't be carried along by the riot of the age because the riot of the age is a huge distraction. It's a head fake to get you off topic of what matters so much more. Declare without disparaging. Let people know not what we're against. Let people know what we're for. Who's for us? The third thing that caught my attention here, that Paul was a friend of the, some of the Asiarchs. That was interesting to me. Paul was friends with people in the city, and those Asiarchs are not identified as Christians. And yet, they know Paul, and they care about him. They are friends of his. He's made friends with them along the way, even though he's not been carried along by and following all of the, all of the uh, things going on in the city. They're not merely acquainted. They're friends. Make friends in the city without being carried along by its current. One of the dangers of, of Christians in church is our family experience as brothers and sisters together in Christ can be so wonderful that we lose along the way. Over time, slowly, we lose those kind of friendship connections with other people around us. Don't do that. Look for ways to keep making friends. In fact, Jesus, in the story of the unjust steward, he commends the unjust steward. You remember the guy that, that um, he was about to be fired because he hadn't managed the accounts well, so he said, what am I going to do? I don't want to go out getting a job digging ditches. I'm too old for that. What am I going to do? Because I know what I'll do. And he calls in one guy after another that, that, that has, a, has a business account with his boss, and he says, how much do you owe? And he changes it. He cuts it in half, and he writes less. He, he adjusts the bill for each one of them so that they will be indebted to him, and they'll look after him in the future. Say, well, that's, that's fraud. How can Jesus commend that? Well, Jesus simply says the sons of this age are more shrewd in, in what they do with this temporary stuff than the sons of the kingdom. And he makes this point. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by how you use your worldly wealth so that when it fails, and it will, that you will have used your resources that these others may receive you into eternal dwelling places. Jesus says, use what's put into your hands temporarily to invite others into eternity. Make friends with the people around you. Those Asiarchs, how would Paul be, establish a friendship with them? Perhaps by caring about what they cared about. These rulers, if they're worth their salt, if they're good rulers, they care about the good of the city. And we're told to do that. We're, in a sense, in an exile. We're not yet in our home. We're waiting for the home that, that Jesus has prepared for us. And yet, while we wait, we are in, we are representatives of Christ in a in. A foreign land, in a sense. Kind of like Israel in their Babylonian captivity, where the prophet Jeremiah tells them, seek the peace 
of the city in which you find yourselves. Seek the good. Seek the shalom. Seek to be a blessing there that they will be better off because you were among them. Is your work environment better off because you're a part of it? Are you a blessing to people in that secular environment? That, that, that friendship, that caring for them, and why would I? Because these are precious ones made in the very image of God who God would give eternal life to, and he may do it through you. It may be that along the way in the future, some of those ones that you befriend and some of those ones that you give out of your own to come near and come alongside and invite them into your life, they might in the future welcome you in when you arrive into the presence of God. You may be surprised at who else you find there and who God used you to impact that's a statement in our, in our bulletin, isn't it? In a family in Christ being changed by his truth, that's a few, Acts chapter 19, impacting others by his grace. That's what we're about here. So Paul values what they valued, perhaps, and that builds, that develops this friendship together. If I could give some advice then, don't get, be careful how you're drawn into the partisanship of the politics. I didn't tell you not to be involved in politics. We have a right and a, and a responsibility, a privilege to be involved in, in the ruling of our, of our country and our communities, and we should. And yet, there's a partisan tone that we want to guard ourselves against. We want to be a, a, a peaceful and helpful participant, and we can do that not by arguing and agitating, but by listening well, considering and convincing. On most topics, I'd suggest use curiosity questions to better understand more than being dogmatic. You use curiosity questions, that's going to be noticed. Why? Because nobody cares anymore what other people think. They only want to be heard. How about we're the ones that because we care for people, we care about what they think, not because we're, we're going to change our minds and agree necessarily, but because they matter. And if I'm going to talk to them about Christ, I probably need to know them and express some value to them. We want to be sensitive as well. When is time to speak up? When is time to wait? There was a time in this, in this theater, in that moment, it wasn't the time. And sometimes it's a matter of trusting ourselves to others, even as we trust ourselves to God. Getting the guidance of God, not from the Holy Spirit directly, but by the Holy Spirit through other believers, and even these Asiarch friends. What Paul does in the midst of a riot without reason, three things that we can learn from him, there's probably more, but what I wanted to pass along is be friends without following along in all of it. We will be different. We must be different, but we must be friends who are different. Be friends without following. Declare without disparaging. Don't tell any, tear others down, lift Jesus up. Don't follow the money. The money won't last. But use whatever resources we have that others might know and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Father, thank you that you would use us even in the midst of a, of a riot without reason. That we can be peacemakers. We can be messengers of your peace. Because Jesus has been our peace.
Father, thank you this morning. Thank you at a time of thanksgiving for peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Father, for the peace that comes from forgiveness between one and another. Thank you for that peace that we have in Jesus. Thank you for the peace that you have used to create family within this church community. And Lord, would you use it? Would you use this community to extend your peace to the people around us? Father, that we might be instruments of peace, not merely as a mood, not merely as a more comfortable social environment, but Father, that others would know the peace of God in Jesus Christ, maybe even through us. Lord, would you use our worship this morning to strengthen hearts as we declare your praise? Father, would you use even this time of offering now as we give ourselves to you, as we give in this offering then by the will of God? As Paul said of those Macedonians, they gave themselves to God and then to us by the will of God. Father, would you use whatever is given for your honor, for your glory, that others would know Jesus as Savior and would grow in him more deeply. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.